0: God's Word, if you're new this morning, we are glad that you are here. Thanks for being a part of our family. We'd love for you to consider being a part of our family each and every week if you do not have a home church. We have been in these weeks in a series called The Crossing. Some of you are like, are we ever going to cross over and get this thing done? Well, we're one week away. But today we're going to look at Joshua chapter 9 and 10. And in God's word, we have revealed to us his strong exhortation. Where did I lose my little remote? Did I put that somewhere? There it is. Thank you. We have been looking into God's word about the Israelites and them taking hold of the promised land. Now, when God takes a hold of the promised land for you, what does that mean? For them, it meant crossing from the east side of the Jordan to the west side of the Jordan and occupying a place that was flowing with milk and honey. And so that was a physical territory. But for you, your promised land may not be a physical move and location. It may be a different disposition that you are being gifted by God in life or a place of freedom or a place of victory. All right? But you can be guaranteed of this. When you move into the promised land, there are going to be battles that you will fight. And we're going to look at a big battle that had to be fought today. Because Joshua, he had success with the Israelites in Jericho when the walls came tumbling down. And then they went to Ai. And when they went to Ai, they ended up getting crushed. Because there was sin in the camp from Jericho. Because the people didn't leave the devoted things to God but they hoarded stuff, okay? They correct that through God's forgiveness and through the correction of the sin. And so they went back to I and they conquered I. And when they conquered I, as we looked at last week, then they reestablished what the law was because we don't know what sin is unless we understand what the law is. Because everybody has their own opinion these days, right? What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. You can do your thing. I'll do my thing. And we'll all be happy. Just don't step on my turf, right? And so we have a culture today that's awful wishy-washy, a culture that really is challenged with knowing what's right and what's wrong. And so he reestablished the law with them. But they've conquered two cities. They've been camped at Gilgal, That's where they camped when they came across the river. They've conquered Jericho, and they've conquered Ai. And now we're going to look at that fourth red dot up there today, Gibeon. And so this is where the story begins to unfold concerning Gibeon. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country and the western foothills and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the... The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. Do you like those names? They're a little bit of tongue twisters. Basically what it's saying is there's a lot of bad people in the promised land who are out to get you. And these people are not God-honoring people at all like the Israelites, the Jewish people who were seeking to worship the one true God. So they've heard about what's happened to Jericho and I and what happened on the other side of the Jordan and this large contingency of this, what their opinion was, was a well-rehearsed, well-dressed army. And they said, we've got to come together. And so they're going to form a coalition. So they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. Now, I think this is always striking to me when I think about them going into the promised land. We've mentioned it before. But I'm sure Joshua had his days where he got up and said, why is this so hard? Some of you crossed over the line of faith, maybe recently, maybe a few years ago. And you wake up some mornings, maybe every morning, and you go, why is this so hard? Why are there battles? Why are there enemies? Why can't everybody just get along? Well, we live in a fallen world. And not only are there people that can be against you because of your faith and your desire to honor God, but we struggle internally with the old sinful nature and the new life spirit of Jesus that dwells within us. And there's this battle that goes on. And this battle is continuous. And sometimes you just wanted, hey, pause, time out, break, give me a break. Could, could could, we just not have to wake up today to face enemies? And I think sometimes Joshua had been found in that camp. They came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon, oh, there's the next group of people that they're going to have to meet, right? When they heard that Joshua had What Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they resorted to a ruse. Oh, it's going to get trickier as we get further into conquering this newfound promised land. They went as a delegation, people from Gibeon, whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Would you please make a treaty with us? Now, again, this is ancient days, so they did not have modern surveillance. They weren't able to fly a drone out and around and, and see what's happening in these cities, right? They had wayfaring strangers come by their path in Gilgal, and they looked destitute. They looked like they had been traveling for a long, long time. But it was all ruse. It was all con job. They had, you know... Taking old wineskins, and usually you take a new wineskin, and it's a skin of an animal sewed together. You pour your wine into it, it's fresh, but then as it gets older, it starts to crack because the wineskin shrinks, all right, and they'd mended it. They put, you know, beat up sandals on with their feet, and they wore old, rugged clothes. I mean, we just came through Halloween, man. Some of you were dressed not like you normally dress, including mom. And that's what they did. And their bread. They made it to be moldy and dry. And so here they come, walking into camp, staggering into camp. Man, we've been a long day's journey, long, long time journey. Hey, hey, would you do us a favor? We we have heard about your God and and your army. Could you just make a treaty with us? So, what's Joshua's response? The Israelites said to the Hivites, but... Perhaps you live near us. Huh? They they smelled it. They're on to them. So how can we make a treaty with you? And they just simply said, we're servants, they said to Joshua. So Joshua asked, who are you? Where do you come from? Now, this is a foreign army. Do you ever do the sniff test in your own life? It might be people, it might be a situation, all right? It might be an opportunity. And you have to decide, foe or friend. And so here Joshua is trying to do a little bit of the sniff test. So where are you and where did you come from? Is, Is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? And we weigh it in the balance. They answered, your servants, we've come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord, your God, we have heard reports of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon, king of Heshbon and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned with Astroth. and our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey, go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Make a treaty with us. And so, Joshua was doing the sniff test, but his teeth coming at us. Hey, we're good. We're, we're really not here to harm you. We're, we're here to, you know, be your servants and to help. All right? And so we get all kinds of opportunities and even people that come in and out of our life that can present to us great opportunity that's truly of God. But sometimes, as Scripture says, Satan can appear as an angel of light. And you've got to be wise unto what comes into your camp because what comes into your camp may not be what the world's telling you it's really for. Oh, this is for your benefit. This is good. Everybody's doing it. You'll be fine. Join in. What do you do after your initial sniff test? What would do. They continued on. The bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day that we left to come to you. But now see how dry and moldy it is. And see these wineskins that we filled were new. But see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. Friends, they are persistent. They didn't go, oh, (laughs) we were just kidding. We're actually from over on the other hill. No. Things that come into your life. They can be persistent. And some of these temptations, some of the things that are sought to destroy your life and mine, they will come year upon year, month upon month, even day upon day. You have enemies from the adversary and his ways that seek to infiltrate your camp and bring you down. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. What was the big mistake? They did not inquire of the Lord. Now, excuse me, and I know I'm a Christian leader, but, you know, sometimes I'm just like Joshua. You would think you would learn through the years as a Christian leader. You better inquire of God. But sometimes we think, well, I don't need to bug God, or I've got this one. I've figured this one out, and I can see through this. I'm pretty smart. God's given me a brain. But we don't inquire of the Lord. And we find ourselves in situations of demise because we have neglected the foremost thing we need to be doing. When opportunity or enemy comes. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out, and on the third day came to their cities Gibeon, Kaperath, Baroth, and Kadarth Jerem. But the Israelites did not attack them, because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. Let me pull on a couple of things from here for you, okay? What happened on the heels of this was, and you can read the rest of it in Joshua 9, they did make the Gibeonites servants to them in the Israelite camp. But they never went up to war against the Gibeonites because of the treaty that they had made, a treaty of peace. So, was that God-led, or was God trying to make good out of a bad decision by the Israelites? I would say probably the latter, and we're going to see how God took that and used that for his good in a moment, in the next chapter. But here are the two things I would like to present to you. The first is this. The deceptions of the heart waltz into our life when the pursuit of God's will is left standing at the door. The deceptions of the heart waltz into our life when the pursuit of God's will is left standing at the door. Now, part of me wants to put a bunch of adjectives on that. The ruseful deceptions that are hidden, that come as opportunities to the inner heart. They will just waltz right in front and center and stare you in the face and bull you over. When you lack passionate pursuit of God's will in your life and you sort of got God and his purposes checked at the door. You and I have to be relentless every day in passionately pursuing the purposes of God, of inquiring of the Lord. Is this of you or not? Now, I don't want to get you paranoid every day. Am I supposed to eat at this restaurant or am I supposed to eat at this other restaurant? Lord, what would you? You know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the sincere things of the internal life, of your future and your purpose. You need to passionately ask God, Where do you want me to go to college? What do you want me to major in? Is there a purpose for my life beyond just trying to make a paycheck? Do you have a calling for me to go into some type of service or calling to go into business and be an influence from there into a health sector? You are passionately seeking to inquire of God. Oh, well, here's an opportunity that comes up. Somebody says I could go with them on this trip, another trip. I remember one time I was encouraged. This was before Cuba opened up. I got a call from somebody that says, Hey, Cuba is closed, as you well know, but there's a group of us that are going to go in and do ministry with a church or two there. Would you like to go to Cuba? And I'm like, hey, that sounds pretty cool. I'll go to Cuba, right? But when I took it to the Lord, I let him in the front door. We checked it out. There was nothing that resonated with an affirmative answer to do that. It's those kinds of things you need to passionately pursue. And when it comes to interacting with people, being able to serve somebody, maybe it's the homeless, maybe it's your neighbor, your single mom that's down the road that you're trying to help out, you need to ask the Lord, should we be doing these things? And passionately order your day according to inquiries of the Lord. Otherwise, all kinds of enemies, and they're not bad. They're just excursions. They're things that that don't keep you on kingdom mission purpose, right? Right? Our passion as a church is to be fully alive in Christ and to his mission. Do you get up out of bed every morning and say, what's your mission for me today, Jesus? He says, you're going to go to work again. All right. But when you go to work, I want you to go to work with a little bit better attitude than you had yesterday, especially about the coworker two cubicles over. Oh. And I want you to look for opportunities to encourage somebody. When I drop my... Um, Suddenly, Levi off at at school uh, on on a weekday morning, I say, Levi, you look for ways to encourage your teachers and your staff people. God's got something for you today. You be a friend of somebody. Okay, Dad. That's what I'm saying every day. Let's bring a bow down into the pragmatics. But deceptions of the heart, they'll just waltz into your life. Oh, hey, here, look. We have been very tired from long ways away. Poke it. Don't just sniff it. And then bring Jesus in. The second thing is this. Standing true to commitments induces confidence for others to be endeared to the personhood of our covenant-keeping God. I don't know about you, but I might have changed my opinion once I found out that they were from the other side of the hill and not from way far away. But Joshua, to his credit, and the elders, they had made an oath before God. Friends, we live in a culture today that nobody keeps their promises. Has somebody recently broke a promise to you? I mean, yeah, it may be the big promises like a marriage, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, and sickness and health, to love and to cherish until we part by death. And all of a sudden, it was uh, not the better, it was the worse, and they bailed. That's somebody not living up to their covenant commitment. But it may be as simple as somebody saying that they're going to push through and see you to a new place in life and they bail on you. We give up on commitments a lot. But friends, as children of the most high God, we are called to stay true to those covenants and those vows that we make before God to others. Are you waffling on any right now? Friends, it's not only good for you in your own life, but the beautiful aroma of an incredible covenant-seeking God is smothered out when we as a people do not keep true to our commitments. But when we do, it's attractive to others and say, you know, Noah is a man of his word. And when he says yes, he means yes. And when he means no, he means no. And I can bank on that. Maybe, though, they might say, you know, Jessica, she's she's a great gal. But, you know, last time she was supposed to come through on something and she didn't even say anything to me because I don't know what happened. And... It's understandable. You ask for forgiveness. You try to make amends. But there's a track record. And Jessica's not that way, by the way. There's a track record that begins to develop in your life. And that track record is not only makes you look bad. It makes the God you claim to follow look bad. Now, God's big enough. He's supreme enough. But the most powerful apologetic for the faith we have is the community we live with one another and part of that community is the covenant keeping impact that we have, so those are two things we gain from Joshua nine. but as you notice on our as you notice on our drawing here there's um some other cities, and those cities are listed in Joshua ten. so here we go now Adonai don't know King of Jerusalem, ah, oh, the first time Jerusalem's name comes, right? The, the place where our Lord um, had the Last Supper, the place where our Lord did miracles, the place where the Lord was betrayed, the place where the Lord was uh, crucified, and, and also he rose from the grave. The place where the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples, Jerusalem. We're so common with Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was not very well known, a city at that time, but here it's mentioned. The king of Jerusalem heard that Joshua had taken eye and had totally destroyed it doing to Ai and its kings that he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was, very, was an important city, like one of the royal cities. And it was larger than Ai, and all its men were good fighters. All right, so Gibeon is a very prestigious town that was known and the king and the army were highly esteemed, but then they found out they became traitors. I can't believe Gibeon and all of his people and its army made a pact, a treaty, with Israel. Now, what would happen to you if you were a part of some of these outlying cities? So, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Horam, king of Hebron, Param, king of Jarmuth. Jophra, king of Lachish, and Debur king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jermoth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. I mean, these people were probably smoking mad, they were very upset because they thought, oh, surely this invasion of Israelites isn't going to work our way because there's all these other opportunities for them to be defeated. So that's where you see the, the gold circles. All those five cities came together, went up to Gibeon to attack Gibeon because of what they had done and they are uniting in a coalition. (laughs) How about your promised land and your battles? Do you ever sometimes wonder if there's a bunch of different people and situations getting together and being aligned against you? It's like, hey, this isn't fair. What's going on? It wasn't just this that happened to me, but this, 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 and this. Well, I can guarantee you this, that there is one who orchestrates all the battles and armies against you. His angelic name was Lucifer. He fell from the heavens. We refer to him as Satan or the devil. The adversary and all of his other fallen workers, they can orchestrate life whereby you are being attacked by a coalition of evil and discouragement. I wish it wasn't that way, but I just need to inform you it would be poor of me of a pastor not to give you a heads up that you can be under enemy attack. And that enemy attack can be incredibly intense. So, what would you do in this situation if you were Gibeon? The people of Gibeon. Well, they said, you know, we've got a little problem here. We thought we were doing the right thing and tricking the Israelites into this peace treaty. Um, I don't know if I don't know if it was more than a peace treaty. I don't know if it was a defense treaty. you know we have that in our world, right NATO and that if one if one country's attacked we that's like attacking us and we will join together in arms right It didn't appear that their little treaty with Israel and Joshua was. A defense treaty, too, but they were going to give it a shot. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants, man. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us, because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. We are in some deep stuff. At this particular moment, there's another question that comes. Do they deserve it? And maybe this is God. Maybe this is God getting rid of the Gibeonites. Because what? Joshua was tricked. They should not have been given that treaty. And so here they come on bended knee, begging, help us, save us. We are in trouble. And Joshua could say, tough. You're on your own. You hung us out there with deception. There's no defense treaty. It was just a peace treaty. You're on your own. Joshua could have done that. You know, we're living in a a day when there's a lot of sides that are being taken. Aren't there? Tuesday's a pretty big day in our country. It's a midterm election. We're not voting on a president, but we're voting on Congress members. We're voting on state um, leadership. And... You have all kinds of political ads going against you every day. I look forward to Wednesday for that very reason. (laughs) And you have people that are pitting it not as pure decisions and policies and things that need to be decided, but you have politics being pitted today as two sides. And they're two sides that are opposed to one another, they're enemies in attack. And so we have to decide which side are we on. Are we on this side on the left? Or are we on this side on the right? Or or how how are we going to navigate forward with this? And if you're not on the right side, then you're the enemy. And there's this stew of, of divisiveness in our culture. And we all experience it. Well, Abraham Lincoln experienced it. You know when he was in the middle of his political life, you had the north and the south. And you had a civil war going on. And when Abraham was asked, well, which side do you think God's on? Do you think God's on the side of the north or the side of the south? Which side? And we do the same thing today. Even though we're not at a physical civil war, we're at a political civil war. Which side is God on? And I don't know if you get confused. I, I I I vote by mail ballot. So any of you do that, it's a beautiful thing. I like that about the state. And so, but there's a reason I've discovered that you vote can vote by mail ballot in California is because the ballot is so stinking long. <laughs> Two of them this long. I could have brought them in here today, and you go, ooh, this might take some work. And you got to figure out who's who and and. God bless California, you vote on everything. So you got the propositions that are all scattered down on one document. And you gotta research that. Vote no to this prop, vote no to yes to that prop, right? And it takes some while to do your homework trying to figure out what it is. But you're trying to decide what would maybe God have I I don't know, what am I thinking? What you know, and you get a little confused. Well, let me simplify things for you with Abraham Lincoln's quote that he gave back to the person who asked him, which side is God on? Do you know it? Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. That's sort of making the inquiry of the Lord. You see, we don't get to choose what is moral in this life. Oh, there may be some political decisions of policy that, yeah, I can go. But I tell you what, some of the biggies. And biggies can be things like protecting life in a womb that God knits together. It can be caring for people that are less fortunate than us. Whole immigration issue there can go in different directions, right? But we're also called to be a people of law and not be lawless. We have a lot that we have to consider in this country, opportunities to vote. But to sort of clean it up, why don't you just start with this? What what does God think? He's always right. And I want to be on God's side. But the challenge today is to be on God's side. Sometimes leads us to be in opposition to a majority. Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. What was Joshua going to do in the midst of this situation? What was Joshua going to do? Was he going to be on the side of Gibeon and and fight against these partners that had come together? Or was he going to be on the side of God, maybe, and just step away and let the Gibeonites get eaten up So Joshua marched up from Gilgal, it says in verse 7, with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. So here they are. They came into Gilgal, the Gibeonites, help us, save us. And Joshua, discerning of the Lord that I need to stay true to my commitment we had a vow, and maybe it wasn't fully a defense vow, a vow of peace. Gibeon knew that if these other kings these, from these other cities were to destroy Gibeon, that they would be in a difficult predicament as Israelites. And so he chose to take his army and go. And he went because he heard from the Lord, Do not be afraid, I have given them into your hand. Inquire of the Lord. And when he tells you what to do, and if he doesn't tell you what to do, maybe leave a little bit more time and space. And we're going to talk about that in a second as to, you know, asking of the Lord. But friends, when you get that word, do not be afraid of them. I have given them to your hands. Then you can stand true. You see, he never heard that. Joshua didn't hear that originally from the whole going into I. Because they went into I with sin in their camp. But here, when he was discerning and seeking from God, I got this treaty with people that, yeah, they did it in a deceptive part, but here we are, what are we called to do? God said, you go against him, I'm going to deliver him into your hands. And immediately, it harks back to Joshua 1. Do not be discouraged, right? Do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. And so God sometimes, he gives you a command of affirmation at one point in your time in life. And you sort of lose track of it. And then later on, he brings it back around. He says, hey, listen, I'm still with you. You can take this battle on. You can take this battle on because I am the one who is going to defeat the enemy. And so that's exactly what he did. Now, Gilgal was probably about a three-day casual walk to Gibeon. But after an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them, the five unified enemies that had come together to fight against Gibeon. He took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horan and cut them down all the way to Ezekiel and Makeda. As they fled before the Lord Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Hezekiah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. All right, now picture this, especially if you're younger, use your imagination, right? I don't have the old flannel graph. I don't have videos up here. I can't do the dance, but use your brain here and imagine. Where Joshua was coming from, when he came into Beth Horan, there's an upper Beth Horan and there's a lower Beth Horon. and it falls about seven, eight hundred feet in the course of two miles. Here's Joshua, he comes up over the top, and can you see this picture? Here's these armies that had been coming towards them, and the Gibeonites said, help us, save us, Right? And Joshua says, all right, let's rally the troops. God says he's given them to our hands. Let's head out. He heads out with a multitude of people. doesn't say how many, but we know before it's been like 30,000 people. He heads out with this kind of army, and he comes up on the precipice. And can you imagine what Joshua sees? He sees... He sees this hill country and it's going down this big hill. You know, maybe some of them fall are going. And all Israelites, they're charging with their spears and their swords and and they're trying to demolish the enemy. And then off on the horizon is this storm or something that comes brewing in and it's a wicked, ugly, green, black, purple kind of storm. And God just starts saying, hang on, I'll help you. And he takes huge, big, Hailstones, I don't know how big they were. I guess they don't need to be that big if they hit in the right place. And he just starts whipping them down there like a big snowball fight. <laughs> I, I'm not saying this, it said the Lord hurled hailstones down on them. Now, it happened in a natural realm that was some <laughs> major storm, but he just, well, I'm doing, take care of this. And Joshua was standing going, This is an incredible sight. Could somebody get a video of this? <laughs> God was taking matters into his own hands. It was the Lord that threw him into confusion. And if you look at some of the translation, it really says it's the Lord through Israel that pursued them along the road. Friends, if God is on your side with something he's told you, then you stay true. He's going to fight the battle and you should not ever feel like you should give up when God is on your side. If God is for us, who can be against us, Scripture says. And some of you become weak need, in living life for Jesus because of the opposition, the discouragement, and things aren't going your way. Well, friends, it's not about all the stuff you can get with you and the accolades from others and the portfolio you build when you leave this earth. It's about where you're at with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're with him, he is for you, and he will fight your battles so you stay true. You stay true. You think the hailstones were a pretty big deal here. This story is not known for the hailstones. It's not known for the coalition of the armies or even the deception of the Gibeonites. It's known for what happened next with Joshua because he stood on top of that hill as they were going down and he realized the sun was setting and they were being defeated. Five kings... Five cities all at one time. Do you think God took that deception of Gibeon, the Gibeonites and turned it around for good? Joshua knew he had them. But they didn't have any night vision goggles to put on their warriors. You stop fighting at night. On the day, in verse 12... The Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel. Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon. And you moon over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. And if you question it, because that sounds incredible, then go read it in the book of Joshua. Problem is, Jashar is not a book of the Bible. It was a book about the Hebrew people and the doings. If you ever find that book, you'll be a very rich person. We don't know anything about that antiquity book, but Joshua knew this story was pretty incredible. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. I don't know about you. i love to live in the Bible. Because it's not ancient history of 3,500 years ago. It's the same God who lives today. And when I read these kinds of stories, I get those goosebumps that go down with me. I'm like, No way! Now then... The skeptic side of me goes, nah, that ain't possible. Well, friends, with God, all things are possible. Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven says, behold, I, the Lord, the maker of all flesh. Is there nothing that I can't do? Now, if you study this passage scientifically, you've got a problem. There's about 12 different explanations that people have come up with to try to explain how could God just do away with the whole night time and have it two days in a row, light. Because we know that the sun is not stopping. We live on a planet that spins. And if it doesn't spin, you don't have gravity. And you're going to be flying towards the east coast right now about 1,000 miles an hour if it stops spinning. Okay? Well, maybe it was poetic. Maybe things didn't stop spinning. Maybe we're mistranslating the words and it really wasn't a daylight time, but it was like some type of solar eclipse and the sun sort of stood still behind the moon or something. You, could, you can study all this, all, all these kinds of explanations. You can even find in ancient writings people who said that there was a day where 24 hours, it, it stopped still. Now Now, we're all here... Today, because time stopped, right? It stopped for an hour. Daylight savings time. I noticed everybody was pretty well to church on time today. I like that. <laughs> But this wasn't a daylight savings kind of thing. And the reality is that even daylight savings time doesn't mean that it stops for an hour, right? We all know that. We're smart people. We're not stupid. These people back in the Bible times, Joshua, he didn't know what I'm talking about. He didn't know that the world was round and it spun and it went around the sun and all those things. The world couldn't, it couldn't stop. I don't know that it stopped. After reading all the explanations, I think probably it slowed down maybe. In fact, scientifically, they said sometimes sun storms and other things could cause planets to slow. But it really doesn't matter to me because he's the God who created everything. And if he's God who created everything, then he can slow something down without there being other scientifically complicated problems. The question isn't about the science. The question is about your God. Do you believe that your God is able? And then put yourself in Joshua's shoes. Would you have had the gall to stand there with the sun going down, hailstones beating people up, your army winning, but knowing that if you didn't win tonight or that day that you'd be in trouble? Would you have the audacity to ask God to stop the sun? No, I wouldn't. That would be presumptuous, wouldn't it? I mean, when we pray, it's supposed to be humble. It's supposed to be quiet. It's supposed to be reflective. It's supposed to be honoring God. And, and, and surely it's not to be presumptuous. See, I fall in that last camp. Sometimes I err in prayer because I think, well, that's being presumptuous like I can ask of God. But friends, Joshua had a bold, bold prayer. And it happened. And we'll find out someday how it happened. But it's recorded. And it's understood that the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down for a full day. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. They defeated all those cities. It was the linchpin of taking over the promised land and Joshua then returned with Israel to Gilgal. This is my third encouragement of you today and it's this bold prayers in god-led battles place the ultimate responsibility on the one hope for needed miracles to happen. Do you pray bold prayers? How big Is your God when you pray? Is he the one true hope and he can make miracles happen? The story is told about Donald Barnhouse, who was a famous preacher. It says this, about 12 years after he graduated from Princeton, Donald Gray Barnhouse was invited to preach in chapel, got invited back to school. And when he arrived, he noticed his old Hebrew professor, Robert Wilson, had taken a place near the front to hear him. When the service was older, his old Hebrew professor came up to Barnhouse and said, If you come back again, I will not come to hear you preach. I only come once. I am glad that you are a big godder. When the boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders Or little godders. And then I know what their ministry will be. Barnhouse asked Wilson, his old professor, to explain. He said, well, some men have a little god, and they are always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration of the scriptures and their preservation and transmission to us even. They have a little god, and I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great god. He speaks and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those who fear him. You have a great God and he will bless your ministry. Are you a little God or are you a big God? And I want to encourage you today to expand the size of your God to how he truly exists in all eternity. We have a big God who can work miracles, and we need to be bold in our prayers. There's a story told concerning World War II. It says this, just before V.E. Day of World War II, a soldier named Joel wrote his mother in New Jersey about a miraculous deliverance of his platoon. Our outfit has been taken off the Army's secret list, so now you will hear a little of our activities. We are part of the 3rd Army under General Patton. My platoon has been working mostly in observation posts and also a few patrols. One of my best buddies, Tom, with his whole platoon, was pinned down by German mortar and artillery fire. They were given the order to move, but couldn't because the Germans had full view of them from a hill and were zeroing zeroing their fire in on them perfectly. Tom is the most conscientious Christian boy I've ever met in the service. He knew something had to be done to save the 50 men. He crawled from his foxhole, looked things over, seeing how things were. He lay down behind a tree and earnestly prayed God for God to help them out of their situation. This is true, mother. After he prayed, a fog or mist rolled down between the two hills and the whole platoon got out of their foxholes and escaped. They reorganized in a little town behind the lines where there was a church building. They all went in, knelt down to pray, and thanked the Lord. Then they asked the kid to take the service. That is true, Ma. And it just shows how much prayer can mean. If that wasn't an answer to prayer, I don't know what is. You can bet that Tom is respected by his buddies. And you can bet that his buddies respected God. What bold prayers do you need to have? Friends, we need bold praying in this church. We need bold praying in this church. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive His mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. This week, we had some concerns as church leaders concerning the delays of us getting into the facility that was on the postcard that was on your seat. We had a meeting on Wednesday night because Thursday was November 1st, and November 1st was a a deadline opportunity for us to make some decisions that could cause us to step away from that which stood before us. What would we do? Things continue to be delayed. There's expenses to it. After a very lively meeting, the decision was made to go and make an ask. I'd been in discussions with the owner who runs the trust of the facility we're seeking to lease, that we've signed a lease on. I have been in dialogues a lot with the realtor that we've worked with through that trust. I don't like phone calls and text messages and emails. I'm getting tired of not reading things right, but I felt there was no deep appreciation for how we were misled, if one sense if I can say that by city concerning permitting issues and that we'd be so delayed in getting into that building because it has issues and costs to it, as well as momentum concerns for us. And it's weighed heavy on the heart. I get people asking me all the time, you like, show up at your how's the things going on in the building? Well we haven't got the permit yet. I haven't got the permit yet. That's not fun. You start to doubt, is God really with us? Did we hear from him? So I made the decision. I took the decision face-to-face. Thursday I text the owner, I'd like to meet face-to-face. I waited 20 minutes in the chaparral parking lot after I dropped Levi off to hear back from him and her back from me. So I said, I'll go to McDonald's, get a bite to eat, and see if that chills me out or ruins me, one of the two. <laughs> I pull into McDonald's parking lot, and, and he had uh, contacted me back, and by text said, I, I'm busy today. Can't we just talk on the phone? And he called, and I said, no, I want to talk face-to-face. So I went to his office to talk face-to-face and sat down, and we decided at our meeting on Wednesday to keep it simple not to try to explain all the ramifications and challenges because people don't really care they're business people we just want our money and I said Tim you guys are to meet Tim if you haven't already I said Tim you knew from the start that we're a small church trying to get a big plane off a runway and we need a longer runway and uh one of the things that endeared me to you was the handshake and said, you're in this with us. I didn't know how he'd respond because I thought he would respond with a simple, well, that's not my problem. Just like the Gibby and I, that's not my problem. You can take him on. But he shared across that chair to chair we were sitting in, in a a makeshift office because they were renovating where he was at. He shared with me some hope and he also shared with me part of his life. And it was Probably best conversation I ever had with him. And we later talked about, he thought, I was going to lower the boom on him. And uh, he didn't know what was going to happen. And he said, I'm not in real estate to ruin people. He says, I am in this to be a partner. And he says, I think you, you have a great place there, and you're going to succeed really well. He says, you know, other churches were looking at it, even big churches in this city. So it's a good space. It's a good location. And through conversation with him and what he chose to do as well as the realtor, they chose uh, to basically extend to us a charitable gift of $25,000 and also hopefully to be able to extend the reduced rate to buy the property by another six months. Friends, it's those kinds of prayers because we're a small church trying to get a big plane off the ground for the glory of God to reach people that need Him. And we do praise the Lord. I'm going to ask the ushers to take their places and receive the Lord's tithes and offerings. I made a decision here after communion